Good morning. It's good to see you all, to be here with you. I'm excited to look into, uh, into the Word with you. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians again, and we're going to get a chance to, to settle this morning in a passage that's a little smaller uh, than sometimes uh, we'll be, be looking at, because in large part we're looking at some of the bigger themes uh, throughout 1 Corinthians. And uh, it's always cool how God weaves together you know, His purposes and His intentions as, as we minister and live together as a body, and even sometimes in the case of you know, music and teaching. Um, one of the things that uh, we want to sort of start out with trying to get our heads around is the idea that we heard from Tim last week. We heard about Christ as being you know, the foolishness of God. The, the preaching of the cross is folly and it's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are believing, it's the wisdom and power of God. It works for those who believe it. It doesn't work for those who don't. It looks senseless. It looks foolish. Uh, but, but the idea of foolishness um, is not probably something that you know, many of us had taken time to sort of ingest. Uh, but, but, you know, uh, one of the things we want to do when we come to Scripture is try to, to have sympathetic eyes and ears. You know, the things we see in Scripture and hear and understand. Like we understand, first of all, that they were written to someone else, you know, ultimately. They were written to an audience, and then they're declared or preached to us. So, so sometimes it helps us receive them better if we understand or try to, to spend a little time in the shoes of the people who it was originally spoken to. Um, and in that case, it was Jews and Gentiles, both, in this church in Corinth. Uh, but we know, as, as Tim has set this out, that it's, it's a, um, you know, there's strife and division, there's pride, uh, there's jockeying for position going on, there's people that say, I'm about Paul, I'm about Jesus, I'm about Cephas, no, I like Apollos. There's people making unhealthy distinctions, and they're just not working together for the good of the church and the world. And Paul's going to speak into their life and ask them to consider some things about their calling. But first of all, before we do that, we have to just sort of you know, wrap our heads around what it means um, for some of these things that perhaps we're familiar with. You know, if you're church going, this stuff doesn't take us back. And maybe you're not, and, and that's, that's great in a way. You'll be able to sympathize uh, with these hearers. Because in our day and age, the cross is, is for most people, uh, not an offensive symbol of, uh, of religion. It's just, it is what it is. It's not really troubling to people. Uh, most people, even if they're not Christians, um, you know, they understand what it's about a little bit. They have a sense of how it's connected to the Christian faith. Uh, but in that day and age, of course, the Jews, the people of God, who had long awaited their Messiah, which we just sang about, you know, they were looking for largely political deliverance. And when Jesus came, of course, they rejoiced, they put down the branches, right? And in a six-day span, five-day span, everything turned on its ear when they found out that he wasn't what they hoped he would be. Because there was something mysterious and, in fact, scandalous going on, and they didn't want to have anything to do with it. We were reminded that the Jews asked for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom in verse 22. But Paul says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is God's power and wisdom. For those who are God's, Christ is God's power and his wisdom because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. So we have something that Paul's talking about. And honestly, if we just read this at a, at a glance and we don't really sit on it, it seems a little weird, right? You're like, did Paul just call God foolish? You know, wait, did I just hear something that there's something like about foolishness and weakness with God? That doesn't make sense. He's God, right? He's powerful. He knows everything. How can he be foolish? How can he be weak? Uh, and of course, so Paul is going to do something that he does often, and he's going to play into uh, a word and take it and sort of uh, manipulate the meaning at times. He's going to turn it on its ear. He's going to reapply it for us and, and put it, he's going to put a spin on things. He's going to help us think about God in a different way. Um, you know, when, 
when I first started trying to get my head uh, around this concept, I remember for a while not being, um, you know, really not acknowledging or recognizing this reality that part of the Christian worldview, the Christian faith, is scandalous and it's mysterious and it's troubling. Of course, so we're raised in an age and in times when we've been taught to think critically, ideally, right, um, uh, to make distinctions, to, to, you know, weed out bad arguments, and to believe rationally, you know, what makes sense, and to decide what makes sense, and if it doesn't, we throw it out, right? You know, and it was no different then. Uh, but one of the guys, one of the beautiful things about uh, the arts is that they help us, you know, access things in different ways. Uh, you know, music, uh, art itself, um, with pictures, pictorial representations. One of the things that helped me um, was a song, was a, you know, a, a poem. It was made into a song by a guy uh, who used to be, I don't want to say he was famous, but well-known. His name was Michael Card. And uh, he's in sort of an old-school contemporary Christian writer who actually has a degree in biblical studies, a master's degree. He's a really thoughtful guy, and he, he does really hard stuff in music. He doesn't write, um, you know, easily. And so sometimes it's easier to hear what he's saying without the music. Uh, but but this, was a, this was a song I want to share with you, a poem that, that sort of wrapped it up. And again, don't be offended. He's trying to do what Paul did here. And he says, It seems I've imagined him all of my life as the wisest of all of mankind. But if God's holy wisdom is foolish to men, he must have seemed out of his mind. For even his family said he was mad, and the priest said a demon's to blame. But God in the form of this angry young man could not have seemed perfectly sane. When we in our foolishness thought we were wise, he played the fool and he opened our eyes. When we in our weakness believed we were strong, he became helpless to show we were wrong. Come lose your life for a carpenter's son, for a madman who died for a dream. Then you'll have the faith his first followers had, and you'll feel the weight of the beam. So surrender the hunger to say you must know. Have the courage to say, I believe. For the power of paradox opens our eyes and blinds those who say they can see. So we follow God's own fool, for only the foolish can tell. Believe the unbelievable and come be a fool as well. This is one of the major themes and messages of 1 Corinthians. This is what, uh, you know, Tim was getting into, what Paul's getting at, and he's going to continue to develop, uh, to develop in different places in this book and throughout his writings, is that one of the things you've got to, like, get, learn to be okay with from the start is that some of the things in Scripture are troubling, and they're not always going to make sense, and God doesn't work or do things the way you do, the way the world does, as we're going to see. He's his own being. He is, right? And then we are all derivative. We learn from he, um, who he is. He is the source. He is the creator. We are the creatures. And so there's this really helpful distinction that if we can, if we can sort of try to grasp and sink our teeth into, it helps us in all areas of life and in every time we come to the scripture. Creator, creature, distinction. Now, because we share in his image, there's a lot that's similar, and there's tons of likeness. And so the, the point is not to say you are nothing like him, but he is still altogether different on many levels than us. And so uh, when we come to Scripture and we find these things that are going to be like, sometimes they're confusing and they're troubling, just, just you know, go ahead and try to buy in and believe into the fact that that's okay. You're not going to be able to make sense. We are not going to be able to make sense of everything we find in Scripture. So some of this stuff, I mean, what we're hearing here, these people were hearing Messiah and was crucified, right? Messiah, political leader, strength, might, deliverance, and he's crucified, right? Peter's the one who drops that in his Pentecost sermon. By the way, you killed the, the prince of life. I mean, he's always bringing this back around. By the way, you killed the king, who wasn't the kind of king you wanted, but he is a king nonetheless. Why? Because he operates in the realm of the kingdom of God, not in the kingdom of this world. So um, 
that's just something like we need to acknowledge up front. God and Jesus are operating in an entirely different sphere, in different ways and different purposes than we are. And they're doing it for our good and in all these things, though, even though it's troubling. And these people are saying, this, this is an absolute um, misnomer. It's antithetical. These things don't go together. You don't have a Messiah that's crucified. So one of the themes that Paul develops in this foolishness uh, motif in 1 Corinthians is to say, here's one of the ways things are just crazy. We have a crucified Messiah. That's the first model. And the second one is the one we're going to look at this morning is we have kind of a carnal church. So it's the crucified Messiah. And then the second way in which Paul explains sort of the craziness and the seeming foolishness of the way God does stuff is he goes, like, look at you guys. The Corinthian church is actually one of the models by which Paul demonstrates uh, what he means and how God does his work. And so not only is he speaking to them, he's speaking about them, which makes for, you know, an interesting time. So in verse 26 of chapter 1, Paul says this, Brothers, consider your calling. Not many are wise from a human perspective. Not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen the foolish, the world's foolish things to shame the wise and the world's weak things to shame the strong. God has chosen the world's insignificant and despised things, the things viewed as nothing, so he might bring to nothing the things that are viewed as something, so that no one can boast in his presence. But from him you are in Christ Jesus, who for us became wisdom from God as well as righteousness sanctification, and redemption. In order that, as it is written, the one who boasts must boast in the Lord. Okay, so that's a, that's a mouthful, right? As, and this is, this is a constant theme with Paul. And Paul doesn't say things, you know, in, in always ways that are immediately accessible. Sometimes we have to stop and think and go, what, did he really just say that? Um, but this passage uh, and the passage previous to this that Tim, you know, uh, spoke on, it's really important stuff for us. And I wanted to share, uh, you know, just to continue to wrap our heads around what's actually going on in order to sympathize with these, uh, these first century uh, believers. I want to share some thoughts from uh, a commentator. And he says, It is hard for those in the Christianized West, where the cross was for almost 19 centuries the primary symbol of faith, to appreciate how utterly mad the message of a God who got himself crucified by his enemies, must have seemed the first century Greek or Roman. But it is precisely the depth of this scandal and folly that we must appreciate if we are to understand both why the Corinthians were moved away from it toward wisdom and why it was well over a century before the cross appears among Christians as a symbol of their faith. So, you know, again, first century, when we're talking about the cross, we're talking about the punishment that is commonly given to the worst and basest criminals. So this is what you have when you have Jesus the Messiah, which we sang about this morning, which was cool. Um, you know, he's, he's doing something that God sent him to do. These people are not understanding it. it you're saying, you're telling me he's a Messiah, he's a king, uh, his kingdom's not of this world. Like all the stuff that we know now, of course, and, and again, they don't have the whole scripture. They're getting... You know, they're getting it as it's written. So half the verses and the, the themes we know, these people didn't know. You're telling me that the Messiah was crucified. That's, that's great news. That's stupid. I mean, in their minds, that's just foolish. That's nuts. Why am I going to buy into this? And so we have to, you know, understand that, I mean, for us, it's nothing for us to talk about the cross. We just do it. It's a symbol. It's common. It's everywhere. There, it was about, that was, to talk about the cross meant you were talking about death, penalty, execution. You know, which is why when Jesus says to his followers, take up your cross, it doesn't mean like take up your burden and follow me. It doesn't mean like give up something to show me your sacrifice and make yourself worthy. It means you got to be willing to die to follow me. That's what the cross meant, death. And so here's, here is Jesus, the Messiah, the King, and what is he associated with? Death and defeat and weakness. Right? And that is not an inspiring message. You know? 
There, there's nothing about that that, you know, inspires people, that makes them want to get on board with it, unless, of course, we find that they're being called by God. But if you just take that out in the streets, people are going to think you're nuts, right? I mean, if you, talk to, if you talk to them about Jesus, and there's all kinds of views on Jesus, and, you know, and most people don't have incredibly hostile views. Um, they, they may not believe what the Bible says about him, but you know, they might think he was a good guy. But half of them probably don't even think he existed. You know, he's a myth to many people. But it's not really offensive to us. So we need to get in our minds the idea that, that this is offensive language and to try to put ourselves in these uh, people's place. Uh, this, this writer goes on to say, one can scarcely conceive of a more important and more difficult passage for the church today than this one. It's difficult for the very reason it was in Corinth. We simply cannot abide the scandal of God's doing things His way without our help. And to do it by means of such weakness and folly. But we have often succeeded in blunting the scandal by symbol or creed or propositions. God will not be so easily tamed. And freed from its shackles, the preaching of the cross alone has the power to set people free. And so that's what's being preached, the preaching of the cross, this foolish thing by all respects. It does not make sense. It's absurd. It's lunacy. You don't want to be hanging out with the kind of people who believe this stuff. You know, and put it in your context here. Let's think about what it would be like if you walked through these doors today and if you're in this case, you're welcome here. I'm not talking about you. I'm sympathizing with you, you know. And if you're not a believer and you're not tracking with all the spiritual language and we put, you know, these songs on the screen and we sing about Jesus, the Messiah, and it's just like, what? What does that, what does that even mean? The body and the bread? It's wine. Like, what, what does that mean? That sounds a little crazy. And we sing about blood a lot and how awesome it is. That's nutville. Like, you know what I mean? If you go out on the street and try to pull that off, no one's buying it. And they're going to be like, yeah, that's great. I'll talk to you never again later. It's like, don't come talk to me about blood and how it's wonderful. Obviously, it's not wonderful in every context. It's about Jesus' blood, right? But, but why is it that this, this man's blood should mean something to us? I mean, you know, so let's appreciate the fact that it is kind of nuts. And it's not me saying it. It's Paul saying it. And Paul's writing inspired scripture. So we have to be kind of fine with that. We have to be fine up front with the reality that that what we believe is largely troubling and, and scorned by the world. You know, there's also some other language that comes in here. And Paul doesn't, Paul doesn't really like, you know, he's not giving him a pep talk here. Look what he says. He says, brothers, consider your calling. So the first thing he's saying is, I want you to think. Think about uh, your calling. And the context here is salvation, you know, Christ and this cross. So the calling you have to be the church and to be called into his kingdom Think about this. Consider your calling. And so let's consider that this morning. Parker Ford Church in the year 2012, consider your calling. What is it? And here Paul does something which he often does, and I want to just encourage you if it feels strange. Uh, he doesn't go into what you think is a calling. He says, not many were powerful or noble, uh, not many of you have these attributes. God's doing this and that. And it seems like Paul goes off on a tangent. And he does this often. And he always brings it back around, but you've got to hang with him. And so you've got to wait for it. It's like one of those wait for it moments. Um, I, 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 like, I think in my subconscious, I like to think I was like Paul. My wife gives me grief about this all the time. Because I'll, I'll start something, and then it'll be like, mm, exit ramp, caveat, caveat, back on. Oh, pull something in from the side. And she's just like, whoa, 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 whoa. What was that first thing? Like, stay on the same road. No back roads, no shortcuts. Like, what were you going to say? And I'm like, no, 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 I'm getting to that. And she's like, no, I want it now. I don't want to wait seven minutes. I want it now. And I'm like, no, 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 you don't appreciate the genius of what I'm doing here. Um, you know, and I, you know, I'm weaving together this great, no. I mean, that's what Paul does in Scripture. So I just want to, again, have that sort of like moment, that real life moment where it's like, this is hard stuff sometimes. And sometimes you got to hang. And sometimes you're like, Paul, you just get to the point already. He has one, and, and uh, mine is his, and we'll get there. So just hang in. I know it's weird there. Consider your calling. Not many are wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. 
that's your calling. Instead, God has chosen the world's foolish things to shame the wise and the, chosen the world's weak things to shame the strong. God has chosen the world's insignificant and despised things, the things viewed as nothing, so he might bring to nothing the things viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. So you don't get down until, until you get to the so that, so he might bring to nothing. You don't understand what God's doing. Here's what he says. Your calling is, consider your calling, how you were bought, brought to faith in Christ. Think about it. Do that yourselves right now. You know, think about your life and, and the circumstances and the people that God brought into your life to bring you to faith in Christ. Um, you know, think about this calling. And then what he says is he doesn't just say, hey, we believe some nutty stuff, and I know it's mysterious and scandalous. Just hang in there. It'll be okay. He actually kind of, it feels like he insults them, right? He goes, consider your calling. Not many of you have much to brag about. He goes, you're kind of insignificant and um, weak, and uh, you, know, you don't have noble origins. Like That's not encouraging stuff, is it? You know, if you're trying to encourage and inspire people to follow anything, do you come up to them and say, hey, like, all right, here's my business plan. I know it's, it's a little bit out there. Just hang in there. By the way, you're pathetic. Um, but we have this mission and we're, is anybody, anyone noble here? Seriously, you don't have any connections? You have no power, no resources? A bunch of losers. I mean, right? And he's not, he's not trying to insult them, but this is what he's saying. He's like, you're not connected. Not many of us have the things that the world values, right? The context is Corinth. What are they? They're, they're, they're about competition. They're about one-upsmanship. You know, even in their approach to the gospel, they have certain preachers they like better than other preachers. I mean, they still have a worldly philosophy that they're you know, using and employing in the church, and, and they're in competition. They're divided. And Paul just like, you know what I mean? He lays it out and it's like, you know what? You're not that hot. And he can say that because, of course, later we know Paul actually has all that stuff. Paul has laid it out in another place, you know, of all of his education and his pedigree, who he sat under, the feet of Gamaliel. Paul can hang with all the people who have the stuff that the world respects. And, Paul, and we find Paul saying stuff like, I'm the least of all the apostles and the worst sinner ever. Right? So this is not actually a, a moment for um, self-denigration. You know, the, the things that seem negative in what we're saying this morning, it's not actually to make you feel bad about yourself. That's not Paul's intent. That's not my intent. And yet there's something about the Christian message that requires us to be okay with being messed up. And that's not something you know, new to you here. You know, you've heard that. But, but it's... It's another thing, you know, to really live into it and to be fine with it. And, and yet again, I, I was thinking of how we were singing these songs and, um, you know, an amazing grace. What's, what's, what's the word an amazing grace that you, you self-identified with if you sang it this morning that you probably never use except in that song? Wretch. You all admitted that you were wretches. That's a good start. <laughs> we're all on the same ground, right? I mean, it's something... It's, if we're acknowledging appropriately what God's done in Christ, we're going, it saved a wretch like me. I, I used to talk and preach at this choir I had when I was in uh, Virginia at a church when I was going through seminary, and they, I would feed them all this kind of stuff that I was you know, learning, and like we'd try to work it in the theology of music. And, and at the end of the time, my time there, they got me this T-shirt, and it said, I'm the wretch the song refers to, you know? Which is like, again, not real inspiring. I, you know, I don't know if there were subliminal messages, what they thought of me. But, you know, it's that kind of thing. I mean, can you wear that t-shirt? Can, can you bear being called a wretch? Which, again, doesn't mean we run around to people and act like fools, right? There's foolishness that, that is there because it is what God says it is. It's not a foolishness that we take to, you know, uh, extremes. We don't run around and intentionally act foolish or stupid and, you know, be unwise with our money so we won't have any. Uh, we're not trying to look like fools to the world, but, I mean, when you're walking around saying, I'm wretch, I'm kind of messed up, I need Jesus' help, uh, that's saying something. And we, we sang another song that talked about uh, being poor, 
and weak. I think that was the heart of worship. I mean, it's, and, and it's fine for us. In, in songs, we never think about saying that. But, you know, think about maybe the last time, when was the last time that you actually you know, used those terms to describe yourself in an everyday situation? We don't tend to do it because we don't want to show our weakness. And it's not that we're supposed to want to, but are, like, we acknowledging that that's where we really live? Like, I'm poor, I'm weak, kind of a wretch. Well, that looks funky next to the guy who's going, I'm, I'm rich, <laughs> and I'm awesome, and I have a better GPA than you, and there's more in my IRA than you, than the next guy. I'm going up the ladder. I'm stepping on whoever I need to to get there. I mean, you know, and it doesn't mean... It's not like everyone who's not a Christian is just an absolute jerk, but most of people who are not, you know, following Christ have a different set of values. And it's not to esteem everyone better than themselves. It's, it's usually to, you know, sort of look out for your number one. And number one is you. But Paul is going to let us know that number one is not us. It's Jesus. Um, and this is just, you know, in case it's hard to see and read, just in the text, I mean, this is a real simple breakdown of what's going on here. And we have, you know, God and the world are contrasted in this passage. And it's interesting if you just kind of see it to get that visual, visual representation of um, the kind of words that are associated with each side. Can you guys see it over there? It's hard to get the right angle for everyone. So on God's side versus the world, right? That's an easy distinction. Paul's using terms like foolishness, weakness, insignificance, despised. On the world side, there's wisdom, power, significance, respect. These are the things that people value. Um, in many ways, we value them. But Paul says God actually uses the foolish to shame the wise and the weak to shame the strong. Uh, he uses the insignificant things of the world, and there's actually terms that are used there to say people who aren't. I mean, this is a, there was a slave class that existed in this day, which is, again, something in our, our modern day. It happens. It happens in the world. doesn't happen in most cases in America. We haven't experienced and felt this, so we don't know what it's like to have in our midst, probably, people who were slaves. I mean, these people aren't even on the radar. They don't count. They're not on the roll. They don't get to vote. They don't get the rights and privileges of, and the dignity of humanity. These are nobodies. It's as if they don't even actually exist. That's the point. And then these people are somebodies. They exist. They got rights and power and influence. And God says through Paul, uh, he's, he takes these people and he shames those people. And what he, does, he doesn't mean that he's shaming them psychologically. He's not trying to make you know, the world feel bad about itself. Uh, shame there is a, is a concept that's used throughout the New Testament um, to talk about the, the victory that Christ has over his enemies. And so like in Colossians 2 where Jesus you know, saves us, he takes our debt, he cancels it, he nails it to his cross, and it says there that he publicly you know, displayed shame over his enemies. It doesn't mean that everyone started feeling bad about themselves. It means they knew they were beat. Jesus wins, they lose. And so that's what that shame means. And that's what God is doing to the world. God is doing this in the world and through us, through his chosen people, he is creating an environment in which uh, we find that no boasting is allowed. When we come down to it, we see what are his motivations in doing it. It says, so he might bring to nothing things that are viewed as something, that's your first so, so that no one can boast in his presence. So on some level, uh, you know, we just, we have to understand, like, we're not just, we're not just holding these things in isolation. I mean, God is actually doing something here. We don't just walk around and go, oh, you know, my name is so-and-so, and I love Jesus, and Christianity is crazy, I understand, but do you want to believe it? It has no point. It's just like, it's going to work for me. Do you want it to work for you? God's actually doing something, uh, and he's creating an environment in which boasting is not 
allowed, it's not tolerated, it's not welcome, it's illegitimate because of the way he's doing something. So what seems crazy to us and foolish to the world, this is why God does this in Jesus Christ. We would not do stuff like this. One of my, uh, I like this one turn of phrase from a song, a Christmas song, um, that talks about you know how God did this, right? The Christmas story is kind of crazy, little kid. I mean, and it, it plays in the Christmas story, and the, and the refrain is, this is such a strange way to save the world. Um, maybe you've heard of that. And, and it's that kind of concept. This is strange. This is crazy. And we have these thoughts in other places in Scripture. Uh, Isaiah 55, 10 is a familiar passage. See if you recognize it. Uh, 55, 9, uh, 8 and 9, excuse me. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways. This is the Lord's declaration. For as high... For heaven is higher than earth, as heaven is higher than earth, excuse me, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And that's commonly a verse that's quoted, you know, to sort of make us realize that God's big and better and, you know, knows more stuff than us. But the point there is not really that God just is better thinking than you. It's that God thinks in completely different ways because the context there is about forgiveness, Verse 6 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call to him while he is near. Let the wicked abandon his way. The simple one his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord so he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will freely forgive. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. What he's telling them is, you know what? You don't, you don't operate the way I do. Here's how I operate. I actually forgive sinners. Doesn't mean he always forgives them in every case and every time, but he does. Can you think of any other you know, scenario in Scripture where someone on God's team was not thinking like God about forgiveness and was commanded to go and preach repentance to someone? Anybody want to shout it out? Who's that person? Jonah. And what does God say? He commands him to go preach repentance to Nineveh. And Jonah goes, you're nuts. Nineveh doesn't deserve a chance to repent. That seems pretty foolish. Right? God's going to give people a chance to repent when he might as easily just wipe them off the face of the earth. And he can do that. He's God. Right? If you buy into that system. I mean, that's, it's dumb. It's ridiculous. Jonah, Jonah actually was like audacious enough to say it. In his mind, he was like, no, this is crazy, God. I'm okay with you on some levels, but this is nuts. I'm not doing it. I'm out. <laughs> God's like, okay, fish. I mean, if it was crazy before, it was about to get crazy, right? Tell this story to people and be like, oh, yeah, the old fish story, right? Guy got dumped in there and a whale, had to be a whale, right? It was like the gar- in the garden, it was an apple. It's like, where? yeah, this stuff's not in there, just so you know. Um, I'm sure you already know that. But some big fish gets Jonah, and then he stays in the belly of the whale, and then he repents, and he gets vomited. That's pretty inglorious. That's not the kind of thing you want to come here, right? He gets yacked up on the, you know, the shore, and then, he, then he's willing to obey. How many of you are happy that, that God has been forgiving to you enough to not make you go through that? Like, I mean, that's crazy. One of the beautiful things is we know that, I mean, fr- frankly, that's part of the imagery of Christ in the tomb. You know, J- Jonah is a type of Christ there. There's something beautiful in the redemption, in the mystery, and the craziness of it all. There's all kinds of themes that are beautiful. And God is making something beautiful uh, out of us for his sake, even through these foolish things. Um, those that seem foolish to us. And so he's doing it to create an environment in which there's no boasting. And then he goes on to say, but from him, in verse 30, you are in Christ Jesus, who for us became wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, in order that, as it's written, the one who boasts must boast in the Lord. Wait a minute. I thought you just said that God was making an environment in which no boasting was allowed. Paul, I'm finally with you there. And then you say he does this in order that if you boast, you can boast in God. So Paul's doing what he, you know, often does. And he's taking a word and playing with it a little bit. So obviously there's a way in which boasting can be appropriate. The boasting that's being uh, done away with and, you know, these working against in this case is, of course, the boasting in anything of ourselves, Right? 
what the world sees and values, wisdom, might, significance, respect, you know, our worldview is being turned upside down. It's to say, no, in Christ, those are not the things that matter. This is not how God views the world. God does not, God is not impressed by these things. It doesn't mean they're always bad, right? We know that many of his people, okay, Solomon, for example, pretty wise, right? In fact, wisest ever. Wisest man ever. Um, so is wisdom just on its face bad? No. He was powerful. He was rich. He was significant. And yet you see in his own struggle in life uh, how he, you know, he comes to realize that those things are not the things that are really worth seeking after. So this is a God. God rolls like this. The world's like this. If you're with me, it's crazy. It's mysterious. It's scandalous. It's troubling. You need to be fine with that. Don't try to make sense of it all which doesn't mean we can't give a good apologetic, a good defense, uh, an argument for our faith. But it does mean at the end of the day when someone goes, you're nuts and, you know, cusses at you, that you go, okay, <laughs> like, I'm fine with that. You know, I understand why you think this is crazy. Maybe that's, you know, part of what it requires for us. So we find that he is saying, the one who boasts must boast in the Lord. And this is an Old Testament quotation from Jeremiah 9. Another, another something uh, something's beautiful in Scripture is, remember, like these people are getting it piece by piece and don't know everything that we know. They don't have the books. They haven't, you know, it's, it's as it's being written, it's being preached and declared to them. And these guys, what they do know is the Old Testament. And so in many cases, the New Testament, they're pulling parts from the Old uh, and, and, and using them uh, for their sake. So um, if you want to go there, Jeremiah 9, 9, 23 and 24. Um, Again, as we go through this theme of of boasting, uh, boast is a term that's almost exclusive to Paul. It's used 59 times in Scripture in the New Testament, and 55 of those 59 times are Pauline. So it's kind of Paul's word. So it's just another thing, and, and you'll see that developed through Corinthians too, and just in Paul's writings. Boasting is something he he likes to talk about, likes to boast about. There you go. Um, fifty-five to fifty-nine times, and uh, thirty-nine of those fifty-five Pauline usages are in Corinthians, first and second book. And so it's just uh, I just want to make note of that that this is not a passing theme. This is something Paul will develop, and so hopefully it's something we can store in our memory and remember. Uh, you know, and recall, okay, boasting. Yeah, there's something we're supposed to boast in. There's a lot we're not supposed to boast in and we're not allowed to. And Christ has nullified that um, through the scandal, you know. And, and in Scripture, the the passage Tim preached on last week, the, the term is sometimes translated stumbling block. And, and yet the idea is not so much that you're tripping or falling over something. It's that something is so absurd to you that it's offensive. Uh, and so, and that's actually... This is an S and the This is like sometimes the Greek words are looking like, you know, what we read. And, and we sort of miss the point there. This is scandalous stuff. You know, take a moment to think about that. When you think about your, your life and your faith, and when you're going out into the world this week after, you know, celebrating, do you, do you realize that you are in possession of and consumed in a community of faith? that believes in something scandalous? We think of scandal most often in political realms, right? It's the only thing I really hate about election time and stuff because it's just everybody's stuff comes out of the closet and everybody has issues, of course, which we all did. I, mean, I don't even know why people run for office. You're just begging for it. I mean, you can't, uh, who, I don't know. I mean, I'm glad they do on some level. Somebody has to do it and there's Christians who do it and I'm thankful for that too. But it's like, it's crazy. You're just begging for scandal. But in this case, I mean, we're part of a faith that's saying this is scandalous stuff. You're involved in a scandal. The one you believe in, he's a scandal. That's something that's, uh, you know, we got to take in. We got to have time to think and absorb it. Um, Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 says this, 
And this is where Paul is quoting from. This is what the Lord says. The wise must not boast in his wisdom. The mighty must not boast in his might. The rich must not boast in his riches. But the one who boasts should boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord, showing faithful love, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things. This is the Lord's declaration. The wise don't get to boast in their wisdom. The mighty, the warrior, in their strength. The riches, not in the riches. They don't get to boast in that. They don't get to brag. Okay, This is contrary to what we know. This is contrary to the world we live in. The best, the brightest, the richest, the most powerful, the most athletic. These are the people that are exalted in large part. In some ways, we understand why. God doesn't think they're anything special. He doesn't despise them for it either, right? But this is not what impresses God. We've got we to get our heads around the fact that even though we know this on paper, that we don't you know, gain access to God by our works, sometimes we act and we think and we relate to each other as if what we do and how well we do it and our posture and our position actually means anything to God. And it doesn't. He says it doesn't. He says he delights in faithful love, long-suffering, faithful, uh, always forgiving, always returning love. The kind of love he showed for Israel. Israel is the model, uh, Old Testament, the people of God, right? Israel goes on this side. Israel is a stinking mess. Right? I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't take any brains to read the Bible and understand that Israel is just a mess. It's a crazy, messed up family. And they're constantly you know, make, pledging allegiance to God and then defying Him, repenting, and then, you know, relenting of that. They, they're sinning. Then they want to be back in His good graces. They're playing. They're doing this dance with God all the time. Uh, Deuteronomy 7 says, I did not choose you because you were the greatest, for in fact, you are the least of all the people. So there again, foolishness. Like God doesn't come and choose the best, the brightest, all these things. In Israel's case, he chose a pathetic little nation. And he changed the world through them. And in spite of them. And it's no different for us today. You know? So like we're not the church who used to have issues and then we got them right and now we're with Jesus. And we minister to the world and we bless them by letting them hang out with us or not, or we avoid them because we're scared of them, or they threaten us. Like, we just are what we are. And Paul says it's not really impressive, actually. Um, you're kind of a mess, but God's making something beautiful of it, and you need to be fine with the tension that it's mysterious and scandalous. And he says, and what you actually need to be concerned about is knowing Him. The one thing you do get to boast in is knowing the Lord. Again, this is kind of, this is a development in our minds beyond the, the American evangelical representation of getting saved, right? We grow up, we get to figure out that we're sinners, we get told it, um, and, then, and then we get to, you know, we hear about Jesus, and Jesus will make it better if you repent, and you won't go to hell, and you will go to heaven. And, and, and in large part, that is the gospel that most people, you know, are, are nurtured by. And yet it's something much bigger. John 17, Jesus prays his uh, great high priestly prayer, and he says that this is eternal life. He say, he's praying to the Father. He says, this is eternal life, that they, his followers, may know you and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And so it's actually a privilege. Like you've been given the right to boast in Jesus. You understand the reality that you have nothing to boast about apart from him. You've been given the right to boast in him. He takes the weak, the disenfranchised, the insignificant. He takes the Israel and he beats who? Pharaoh. Pharaoh has all this going for him. Pharaoh has, Pharaohs are gods. They tell people they're gods. You don't have a, a choice to make. I'm God, you worship me. If you don't, you die. Things are built in monuments to these people. You can still see them today. These guys made it. As far as the world's concerned, they made it. You didn't. Sorry to tell you. 
right? If you can do, so you can go back to what he's talking about, about a noble birth. You know, do any of you, can you trace your line back to the pharaohs? Can you say you, know, you can stand with them? Probably not. But God takes these kind of people and he, he brings them into relationship with them. He doesn't just take them out of their misery and sort of set them on a good path and leave them. He says the blessing of eternal life is actually knowing and being in relationship. The one who boasts should boast in this, the one thing worth boasting in, that he understands and knows me. And what what does that entail? That I'm the Lord showing faithful love, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things. You know, if you look at 1 Corinthians, it looks like... uh, you know, that this is just some like loser band and you can only be in it if you are terrible and you have nothing going for you. And a lot of the skeptics will say that. I mean, this is part of the foolishness is they go, oh, well, uh, see, now they're, they're actually discriminating against us or anybody that has anything going for them. Uh, and they'll try to you know, turn it on its ear. And there's no ex- you know, exclusive statements being made. Paul said not, not many of you are called that are this way. He didn't say not any, one commentator noted. Um, and there was a guy named Celsus that was an antagonist in, uh, in the early years of the church. And he said something like this. He, he, put, he took their words uh, into his mouth and turned them. He said, their injunctions are like this. Let no one educated, no one wise, no one sensible ever draw near. For these abilities are thought by us to be evils. But as for anyone ignorant and stupid and uneducated, anyone who's a child, let him come boldly. By the fact that they themselves admit that these people are worthy of their God, they show that they want and are able to convince only the foolish, dishonorable, and stupid. Only slaves, women, and children. Nice guy, right? Celsus. Celsus was a jerk, in case you don't know. Um, you know, this is, this is a common view of women, children, slaves back in the day, and uh, it's a terrible one. And again, not one that's largely held in our day and age. But, you know, he's trying to make the case, okay, so you're just saying I have to be all these things. Like, you're not, you don't welcome anyone like this. And that's not what's being said. Again, the point is not to make yourself in any way into something less than what you are. That's the beauty of the body. And, and you know, Paul's going to develop this theme through Corinthians. We all have gifts. We have callings. Uh, we'll see how, you know, we're meant to work together and interdependently. One needs the other. And so we find that not only there's a, there's a personal application to this passage and a corporate one. Personally, you know, faith in Christ, knowing the Lord, boasting in Him. What is your life about? What's the shape of your personal life? Does it involve, is it, is it just too simplistic? Is it complex? Is it mysterious? Is there anything about your life that has anything that could, you know, stink of scandal in it? You know, if someone were to say, to make an evaluation of your life, and again, I'm not trying to promote judgment, but you know, the people you're related to, could they say, like, man, I wish they would shut up about Jesus. I wish they would stop all that God talk. Like, is boasting even something we're doing at all? You know, something's happening in London in a few months. The whole world will stop and watch the Olympics. And what will we do? will boast in humanity. And again, I love the Olympics. I'm not saying you shouldn't. Uh, and there's some ways there's something for us to be had there. You know, we identify with these people. Uh, there's ways in which to worship even, to see someone as good as some of these athletes are at what they do. There's something wonderful there. I mean, God can be worshipped for, you know, allowing man to do these achievements. You know, it's incredible stuff. Records will be broken uh, you know, medals will be awarded. But basically, the world will cheer and cheer itself. You know, and it's a great unifying moment. You know, if you're in a room, there's no Democrats or Republicans, it's just Americans. You know, when Michael Phelps is swimming, we're Americans. We're nothing else, right? And when he wins, there's something communal. There's the personal application and there's communal life. You know, it's not as fun to watch the Olympics by yourself, right? When we want, when we, when we want to celebrate, we do it together. I don't know if you've ever seen, I mean, it's one of those moments. It happens so infrequently. I mean, I remember, I mean, I, I can't even have, like, Lindsay around because I'll, like, wound her if I'm watching, you know, some, some American win or something, and you need a guy there. Guys punch each other and hit each other and chest bump and do. I'm not saying it's exclusive to guys, so, if, ladies, if you do that, I'm just, I just know my own experience. 
Um, you know, we get excited and we want to share in it. And it's the same way in the church. And the Corinthian church is, is not doing it well. And they're saying, I don't, you know, you know what? I'm going to be about this guy. You be about your own guy. And I have this gift and I have this calling and you have your own thing. There's another uh, song as we close that, that kind of wraps up this idea. And it, it asks this question. Did you hear of the city on a hill? Said one old man to the other. It once shined bright. And it would be shining still, but they all started turning on each other. You see, the poets thought the dancers were shallow. And the soldiers thought the poets were weak. And the elders saw the young ones as foolish. And the rich man never heard the poor man speak. Each one thought they knew better, but they were different by design. And instead of standing strong together, they let their differences divide. But it was the rhythm of the dancers that gave the poets life. And it was the spirit of the poets that gave the soldiers strength to fight. It was the fire of the young ones and it was the wisdom of the old. It was the story of the poor man that needed to be told. That's what's going on in the life of the church. God has us called out. And the, the, the things we share in common is that whether or not you like it and can handle it, we're all kind of pathetic and weak and foolish. And we need his wisdom, which is Christ. And the world's not going to understand it. If we try to make him understand it, we're undoing our role that we play in this, this redemptive story. But within the church, too, we need to be fine with each other. We don't need to be jockeying for position. We don't need to, you know, hope to wish to be like something you are not or someone else that you admire, you wish you had their gift. All you need to be is normal, pathetic you. Trust me, the other person, myself included, I'm not preaching at you, I'm preaching with, like, I'm there. The other person has their own issues and you might not know about them until it's like election time, right? But they got their, they got their deal, they got their mess. Let it go, who cares? You got your mess, they have theirs, you have your gift, and they have a different one. And they all work beautifully together, and they're supposed to. Uh, and, and so individually, we're supposed to know and boast in the Lord. But corporately, we're supposed to do it too. And sometimes that looks like singing songs together. And sometimes it looks like sharing our ugliness with each other and going, man, God delivered me from this, or God provided, or God convicted here. God's in my life. We share the communal life together. And we go, you know what? You're, so, you're awesome at that. Way to go. Way to kill that thing. I couldn't do that from, you know. And we look at other people that have these other gifts and say, man, I can't even get my head around how you do that. I can't even go out in public or, you know, whatever the issue is, uh, you know, we celebrate our differences and we buy into them. And people look in on the church and they go, this place is nutty. They believe crazy stuff. They celebrate a guy who died and is executed as a criminal. And they love each other. Steadfast love, justice, mercy, you know, Micah 6, 8, what's he require of you? To justly love mercy and walk humbly. And they come in here and they're going to see people that love and forgive each other and tolerate and embrace and actually delight in those things. And together, we're boasting in the Lord instead of ourselves. And let's do that as we, as we go from this place and as we uh, come into the new week. Let's boast in Jesus Christ alone, nothing else.